screen recording it. All right. Here, we're recording. Oh, all right. All righty. Three, two. Welcome to the Inspirational Athletes Podcast. It is a bonus episode this week for you guys before we resume our normal schedule. Um, so you're going to get two episodes this week. The reason we're doing that is because we had a surprise guest stop by Lancaster County recently that I wanted to squeeze in here. That surprise guest is Olympic gold medalist wrestler Brandon Slay. Um, those in the wrestling world probably know of this name already, but for those who might be unfamiliar, Brandon won an Olympic gold medal in wrestling at the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney. He later went on to serve as the USA wrestling head coach for eight years. He was also inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2016. That's also the same year he was named executive director and head coach of the Pennsylvania Regional Training Center, which which is what uh, kind of brings him to Lancaster. Now, the Pennsylvania Regional Training Center is based in Philadelphia, uh, works on the campuses or wrestling rooms of Drexel University and the University of Pennsylvania. Anyway, um, Brandon was in Lancaster County over the weekend holding an all-day wrestling clinic at the Black Knight Wrestling Club's uh, big barn on the property there of the Schoff Brothers Farms in East Hempfield Township. i got to give a shout-out to LNP Chief Executive Officer, uh, Bob Krasny for initially sending out the cables to get the ball rolling to make this podcast recording happen with Brandon. And I honestly think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Brandon is just a wonderful person, human being, coach. There's obviously a reason he's an Olympic gold medalist and a former head coach of a USA wrestling team. The guy just he exudes, exudes um, a lot of passion, not only for wrestling, but just for life in general. And I think it comes across in this conversation. I think it's one that not only wrestling fans are going to like, but anyone in general, I believe, can listen to this and pull things from it that they might apply to their either personal or professional lives that can better themselves. Uh, Brandon has a lot of great advice just through life experiences and, and how he's gone about con conquering different obstacles that have popped up along the way. And that's kind of the point of this podcast, guys. If you listen to this, um, you probably get the gist of that. But, you know, life can just be plain hard sometimes. We all have bumps in the road of life. And hopefully there's some things in here that folks can uh, take and apply it to your own lives that might help you moving forward. Along those lines, we've already had some awesome guests on the show in the past. Last week, Mannheim Central legend and former longtime Pittsburgh Steelers fullback Dan Kreider was on episode number 50. We also have awesome guests lined up in the near future. Later, later this week, Garden Spot alum Julia O'Brien will stop by. She just recently returned to the States after playing for a professional volleyball team in Italy. Then next week, it'll be another Garden Spot alum, Steve Borgia, he is a former outstanding high school and collegiate wrestler. He's now an assistant wrestling coach at Franklin Marshall College. Yes, uh, kind of, you know, sport winter sports heavy here as uh, wrestlers are, are coming on. I'm trying to line up another podcast with another wrestler. But, you know, that season's just about um, starting to get going if it hasn't already. Um, so look for that coming up. Also on the docket, uh, Elizabethtown alum and former Penn State football lineman Eric Clare will be coming on in a couple weeks. The Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we'll be chatting with Will Kiefer. He runs a local nonprofit program that helps Lancaster's at-risk youth through weightlifting. And then the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, we'll welcome on Lancaster Mennonite grad Bobby Longenecker. He's now a local physical therapist, and he shares his story of recovery to the marathon scene after battling through some serious health complications over the last two years or so. Um, we already recorded that, and it's really kind of an inspirational tale that Bobby has to tell. Anyways, you guys can continue listening in the future and also go back to uh, listen to any of the shows in the archives. You can do that, and you can subscribe to this show 
in one of three ways. If that's on the SoundCloud app, punch in Lancaster Online Podcast in the search area and follow us. If that's on iTunes or Google Play, search Always Lancaster in the podcast section and hit subscribe. With all that out of the way, onto our conversation with Brandon Slay. Enjoy. So where I want to start, uh, obviously you grew up in Texas. Um, I was doing a lot of research over the last week or so, uh, going back over some stuff. You wrote a really wonderful piece in the Players' Tribune, I guess August 2016. Um, I highly recommend folks uh, search that out. But I bring that up because it's in that piece you briefly mentioned you grew up with divorced parents living with your grandma, growing up in a rough environment. I'm not sure how much you've shared about that in your life mm-hmm. at all because I tried searching further beyond mm-hmm. that. but. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but I just wanted to start there just as far as asking, okay, what's your upbringing like that? It sounded like there were some struggles there, and I'm wondering maybe how that molded you or may have impacted you. So so growing up, I wouldn't say that I had a, like a horrible childhood. I was, I was loved, so I'm most thankful that I was loved by many people. Mm-hmm. So I would say it wasn't ideal. It wasn't ideal meaning mom and dad were married, and you know we, we lived in an area with a picket fence, and we had everything. We had a lot of money, and you know it wasn't that situation. Uh, my mom and dad got divorced when I was about three. My mom went custody of me. She tried to raise a boy, rough and tumble boy, by herself. She realized that was going to be a challenge. She realized I needed my father. So uh, we didn't go back to the court system. She basically just let you know my dad take me. And so we went back to Amarillo. And then my dad knew that I needed a mother figure. So my dad and I moved in with my grandmother. So that's where my grandmother pretty much became my mother figure. My mom got remarried, had a daughter of her own, moved down to Austin, Texas. So we were nine hours away from each other. So dad and I were living with my grandmother, and that was kind of the, the beginning of, of me spending that formidable time with my grandma and my dad. My dad worked a ton, so he, he went to work about 4 o'clock in the morning, probably got home at 7, 8 o'clock at night. So I was really with my grandmother most of the time. So my grandmother, um, I called her Mima. I'm a big-time Mima's boy, <laughs> big time. And I wouldn't be where I am today without her, her love and um, just guidance. And so I would say that 5 to 13 period of time those eight years those those are the years I spent you know with my grandmother and my dad um, <clears throat> my dad wrestled in high school wrestling college at the University of Alabama and I think he just hoped his little six-year-old that I would like wrestling too he got me started in wrestling at the local YMCA boys club in Amarillo and uh, as I was telling these kids out here earlier it definitely wasn't a very successful um, beginning to my career I was 0-20 my first year lost every wow. single match probably got pinned every single time Went up to the stands and put my head on my grandmother's lap. Probably cried a lot of those times. But what I was sharing with these, you know, these young men out there today at this camp here is that what kept me into is I made some great friends though. And the friends would ask me to come stay at their house and go jump on their trampoline. And their mom would make us spaghetti or whatever pizza. And and so just that watch movies at their house. And so developing those friendships, I would say, kept me in the sport. That's why those friendships are really important. You know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve year olds. Because many times when, when you first start a sport, most kids aren't amazing at it mm-hmm. the first year anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start football or wrestling or basketball, it's not like you just become a, a phenom immediately. Most, most of the time you have to take your lumps, right. right? So, you know, making those friendships, you know, kept me involved in wrestling. And my second year I was seven and I think 15. My third year I finally had a winning record. And during that whole period of time, as like, you know, I'm living with my grandmother, my dad's getting a van, taking us to tournaments on the weekend. So he would work, you know, 70, 80 hour weeks and then take us to tournaments on the weekend. And, and that was really how, how we grew up. And again, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't mom and dad, um, all of us together per se. It wasn't like perfect, but I don't think any families are perfect. 
Do you have any siblings? And so I have a half sister that my mom got remarried and, and had a had a daughter. So my half sister is about eight years younger than me, but I didn't really grow up with her. So you were kind of um, on your own, I guess. I was. In that sense. I was on my own in that sense. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, the, sorry, I'm going to jump around here, but I'm kind of curious now. Okay, you wrestle at, at uh, University of Pennsylvania. You're you're here coaching now. You have a feel of what wrestling in Pennsylvania is like. I'm kind of curious of your thoughts. Uh, maybe just the high school wrestling scene, Texas compared to Pennsylvania. What's that like for you? Kind of now that you've had that perspective, um, you came up through. You obviously did a great job wrestling in, in high school. I'm kind of curious of your thoughts on it. Well, Pennsylvania is one of the is one of the best wrestling states in the nation. Actually, you you could actually Google this. United World Wrestling came out with an article the other day saying that Pennsylvania, kind of this region, is the number four ranked wrestling region region on the planet. Mm. So not just in the United States. So this this area of our country is one of the best wrestling areas in the world. Okay. So yes, I'm from Texas, and here's what's interesting too is that there's actually more wrestlers in the state of Texas that are competing than in Pennsylvania, mm. numbers wise, because it's a big state. Okay, we have more a lot more people. Just the uh, the, the amount of, of people cause there, there's more wrestlers. However, Texas only has one college wrestling program, and it's an NAI school. It's not a Division One, Division Two, or Division Three no school. Wow. It's called Wayland Baptist. It's in Plainview, Texas. It's uh, south of Amarillo, north of Lubbock, and so Texas has all these wrestlers. Again, more than Pennsylvania, but you don't really have an opportunity or that many opportunities to continue on your college career in Texas. Therefore, somebody like me, and back when I was in high school, that program in Texas didn't exist. So when I was in high school, there was not one college wrestling program in the whole state of Texas. So if I was going to go wrestle somewhere. It was gonna to have to be University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, or you know, I was going on. Yeah. And is the reason before you move on, is the reason for that because maybe they hold like high school football in such high regard, like there's certain priority levels and wrestling's just kinda of at the bottom of the totem pole there? I think that's a big part of it. I think football rules, but but baseball is big in Texas too, and basketball is big in Texas too. I think a big part of it had to do with Title Nine started at the University of Texas. A lot right. of people don't know that. And because of that, there wasn't this big push to want to add or continue, you know, male sports at Texas, Texas A&M, SMU, Rice, TCU. There wasn't this desire to add more men's sports or to keep them. If anything, it was it was what men's sports can we cut? Mm-hmm. That's why there used to be wrestling in the SEC. Now, no SEC mm-hmm. schools actually count. Um, no SEC schools have wrestling. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, Brandon went on to become a three-time state champion in high school in the state of Texas. You go on to wrestle collegiately at the University of Pennsylvania. I think you just did kind of a nice job of explaining what's a, a Texas boy going to a northeastern United States type of school. I guess what I'm wondering there, first off, uh, first experiences with the Pennsylvania winter. Had you seen snow before? I had, actually, <laughs> in uh, Amarillo's north Texas. So we're only like five hours away from Colorado Springs, Colorado. So that top part of Texas is about 3,300 feet elevation, and it gets pretty cold there and snows in the wintertime. So I'd seen snow before. I'd been around snow, but but I wasn't used to when the winter started, you know, it was winter. And for the most part, you know, it was cold for a long period of time. You know, I wasn't used to that. And what I, what I dang sure wasn't used to was walking everywhere because mm. back where I come from, you don't walk anywhere. You drive everywhere. Where I lived in Philly, I didn't have a car for I think four years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I lived on 39th Street. I walked to practice at 33rd Street. I walked to class at 37th Street. So, in the winter time, back to your point, you're, 
in Texas, we drove places when it was cold. In Philly, like I'm, I'm walking everywhere. So they, you had to get uh, bundled up for sure. All right. Um, yeah, and what I'm wondering along those lines, uh, I don't know, being so far away from home, it sounds like you were on your own kind of growing up a little bit. Uh, yeah, your parents and your mm-hmm. grandma's there. But was there a difficulty or an adjustment period for you going from Texas to Pennsylvania the first time you're miles and miles away from home? I think I was, I was used to being independent. And so like being away from home, I don't think was that much of a, of a challenge for me, but I think what really was a challenge was the culture. And, you know, I grew up listening to George Strait and, you know, we say white rice, nice tea and things real nice. And when I got to Philly, I would say things like, you know, that's really nice. People would say, what'd you say? It's a nice, right? I have to repeat myself over and over and just that kind of sometimes people looking at me like I'm an alien, right? Or I, I, that was different for me. I think that again, not having a car walking everywhere was different for me. I think that, and again, Texas culture, people generally will give you a time of day, kind of talk to them, hey, how's your day? Good, how you doing? Like there was just kind of nice um, formalities. But you know, you get to Philly and people are just they're in a hurry, and you know, you say hi to somebody, they look at you sometimes like. It's like I don't, you know, I'm, I got something to do. I'm, I'm going to keep going. And so now I understand that people are just they're on task and they're taking care of business. It's not because they're not nice people. It's just culture. And I think that culture was uh, at first that was kind of challenging for me because I was used to, you know, I was used to Texas. But I found out it's not that the people are, are mean. It's just that they're on task is what I say. All right. And, That's a good way to describe it. And and after a while I got used to it. And, and I started saying white rice and iced tea and things real nice. All right. And so you arrive on campus, University of Pennsylvania, 1993, make an immediate impact helping the Quakers win their first Ivy League title since 1972, earn the Ivy League Rookie of the Year award as well as all, all, uh, first team all Ivy League. What I bring that up is to say you made it look easy. You go to college your first year, bang. But there had to be some challenges there, right? No, there's some major challenges. I end up, um, I end up breaking my jaw at a tournament in Lehigh. I broke my jaw. I had my I had my jaw wired shut in two places. So I'm away from home, 30 hours away from home, broken jaw. I'm going to an Ivy League school. I come from a regular public school, right? So I'm at Penn. I'm taking classes in the Wharton School of Business. My mouth's wired shut. That means I can't eat any solid food. I lose 10 pounds in the first week being on a liquid diet. I'm studying for econ exams, right? Trying to cram for those. A lot of pain. Um, you know, I remember just sometimes you'd have to take you know, you would take, you have to drink a little pain medicine because your jaw hurts so bad. And remember, I would drink a little pain medicine. I'm reading microeconomics and I would just end up being so tired. I just kind of pass out on my book and doing that all by yourself and kind of fighting through that. It was definitely gritty. And um, true story is that I got so sick I had my mouth wired shut. I ended up getting some wire cutters and I cut out all the wires on my own. And remember just opened my mouth and the first thing I went and got was one guy like a chocolate donut to eat and then I went back to the doctor about four days later and the doctor looks at me and says hey how are things are going I think he assumed you know my mouth was going to be wired shut and I said oh you know they're going alright he looked at me did a double take he's like where are your wires and I told him I said look I just can't it was claustrophobic I've lost 10 pounds I can't take anymore and so he put me on like mashed potatoes you know soup diet and, and uh, he didn't wire my mouth shut again but but those challenges being far away from home uh, and just not having that support structure around you immediately were definitely were tough but I'm so thankful my college wrestling coach and his wife at that period of time they were there with me at the hospital um, his wife picked me up after my mouth was wired shut took me back home got me some insure shakes to drink just was there for me 
And I think that made my family feel good to know that that support system was there. Okay. Um, yeah, man, I've heard a lot about wrestlers being tough, but that's the first as far as cutting wires off your jaw being wired <laughs> shut. All right, so Brandon went on to attain several accolades with Penn. We could be here a while if I list them all, so I'll instead say this. Uh, four-time All-Ivy League selection reached the gold medal match in his weight class at the NCAA Championships twice. Uh, became Penn's first NCAA finalist since 1942. Also became the first Penn wrestler in program history to win 100 matches in his career. Uh, graduates from UPenn 98. What's the path over the next two years from then to the uh, Olympic Games in 2000 in Sydney? So after I graduated from Penn, I think that was just, that was very meaningful for me because I say I say humbly, but but it was special knowing that they hadn't had an All-American in the 40s or NCAA finalist since, I guess, 55 years, right? And so to, to finally to accomplish that and then the teams that started coming in after that you know one of my teammates Brett Motter ended up winning the NCAA title in 2000 and then Matt Valenti comes he wins two NCAA titles for Penn Penn becomes you know finished mm-hmm. eighth in the nation mm-hmm. so a team that was like towards the bottom of the barrel let's say 90th in the nation to all of a sudden have multiple All-Americans and finish in the top 10 in the whole entire country I would say that for me um, that's one of the most special things I think in my life to know just just to be one brick you know in the house that was built during that period of time um, and meant a lot but mission was not accomplished for me meaning I wanted to be an Olympic champion mm-hmm. so I moved out to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs Colorado I trained full-time for two years and I always tell people that man I bet that was so hard and I let them know I'm like you know what training for the Olympics at the OTC compared to being a student athlete at Penn was like easy because what happens, you don't have four or five classes at an Ivy League school. You're not writing 15-page papers. You're not trying to read four books in a week. You know, you're not taking you know, finance classes in the Warren School of Business. I didn't have to do that anymore. All I was doing was lifting and wrestling. Must have been a dream. And like I'm taking sure. naps. Yeah. Right? And like you know, studying video on my opponent. So, again, training for the Olympics, yes, it's challenging. But I, I always, I'm very impressed with student-athletes. At colleges that take four or five classes and they're trying to be NCAA champions simultaneously, I would say that in many ways was 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 way more of a challenge than than just having to train solely at the Olympic Training Center. And I tell people now, there's this quote that, that Dan Gable said. They said, "Hey, once you've wrestled, everything in life is easy." I always say, I, I think that I call baloney on that. I say now really? that once you're married and you have three kids, three girls, six, four, and two, like once you're married with three kids, wrestling is easy. And you got a, <laughs> you got a fourth on the way. Too, you got whatever. a fourth one on the way. Um, then wrestling is easy. Yeah, so Brandon, Brandon reaches the gold medal match 2000 games in Sydney, uh, loses to Germany's Alexander Leipold. I'm probably pronouncing that last name incorrectly. Four nothing uh, was the score there in the 167 and a half pound match. Leipold then failed the mandatory drug test after the match, later determined he was stripped of the gold medal, obviously awarded to Brandon. Um, During that whole time, I've gone back and I've tried to find stuff. Your recorder is saying, you know, it's not about having a gold medal around your neck. It's about the gold in your heart. I say that to kind of set the stage of asking, like, you seem to handle that whole situation with a lot of perspective and and grace. You're you're in your early 20s, man. Where do you get that kind of mindset from to handle such a difficult situation so well? I would would say I became... um... About a year before the Olympics, I, I became a man of faith. I just became a Christian. And I started drawing my value from my faith and my family and my friendships and my effort more so than just the goals of the world. I started realizing that, yeah, winning wrestling tournaments and winning first place trophies or gold medals 
that's what I was seeking to do. I mean, I wanted to be an Olympic champion going into the Olympics, but I also realized that that, that wasn't going to be um, the greatest treasure I was going to have in my life. I'm thankful that I started thinking about, even before the Olympics, that my faith and my family and my friendships and, and giving full effort was going to be more important than just the medal. But what's interesting is, is that I knew that if I focused on the right values and I gave full effort, that my chance of winning the gold medal is going to be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. It's interesting like that because I think a lot of people, they want to win so, 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 so bad that they fear failing. Mm-hmm. So when they fear failing, they actually kind of like compete um, tighter mm-hmm. and more anxious. Therefore, they don't compete as freely. Therefore, a lot of times they end up losing. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They did it to themselves because they wanted to win so bad mm. that they feared losing, that that actually ended up kind of messing up for themselves. So I realized that I can't fear failing. I've got to have faith over fear. And ultimately, all I can do is give full effort when I walk out there on the mat at the Olympics and have the chips fall where they may. And, and knowing that I could look myself in the mirror and know I gave full effort and, and that's all I could do. So that's why, like, Beating the Russian who hadn't lost in six years, who's the defending Olympic champion in the Olympics. Um, that was a great win. Felt awesome. Getting to the finals. You're one match away from actually accomplishing this dream. And, you know, there's a lot of detail we don't have to go into. There were some yeah. shady calls yeah. that were made. They end up, you know, rewarding him with the gold medal. But I had peace knowing that I didn't, I didn't do drugs. I didn't take steroids. I really felt like I did things right. I mm-hmm. felt like my priorities were in order. So I had the silver medal, you know, for a period of time. And, and... I was Brandon Slay, the silver medalist, and I had peace with that. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was more to life than medals or even gold medals, right? And and that's why you asked, like, how was I able to kind of, like, come to that conclusion? I think that was – those were my, my values. Okay, so I guess that's a good transition to – I guess what I've been building over the last few minutes is the fact, you know, we hit on all these topics. You reach the peak of your sport. You win a gold medal. You're climbing to that your entire life. Mm-hmm. You finally get it. What's next for you? How do you handle that? Because you've talked about that in the past, and I think you've done a good job with it. Well, I I think it's um, also really dangerous that people think that once they, let's call it, reach their summit, reach their Everest, so to speak, whether it's in their career, they became the president of the company, or they started their own company, or they became an NFL football player, or they won the Olympic gold medal, or they got into Harvard, or whatever it is, right? Pick whatever you think is your your um, Everest, your summit. I think people feel like once they get to the top, then they're not going to have any more problems. And the view, the view is going to fulfill them, and they're just going to be up there for the rest of their life. But the truth is, in the real Mount Mount Everest, the truth is you can only stay up there for about thirty minutes. And if you step there for longer than thirty minutes, you will die of oxygen deprivation. Mm-hmm. So you check out the view, you take your pictures, you you vask in the glory of reaching Mount Everest, the real Mount Everest, but then you have to pack up and walk back down. Right. And you have to go find another find another mountain to climb. And I think that's really how life is. You know, for me, I felt like I, I experienced my Mount Everest by, they put that gold medal around my neck and they say, you will forever be Olympic champion. So it was a beautiful view. Right. I really enjoyed it. It was peaceful. But you can't stay up there. If you just stay up there and you keep drawing all your value from that, all your value from that, metaphorically, you actually end up, you kind of die to yourself. And you become somebody that most people actually, they don't want to spend time with anymore because all you want to do is talk about your gold medal Mm -hmm. or your 
job or your degree or whatever you have, right? You just end up drawing all your value from that, which makes you, um, it just makes you kind of like not fun to be around. <laughs> so with all that being said, like, cause I, I've found nuggets here and there as far as, okay, you're a Wharton school Penn, uh, school at Penn uh, graduate. You probably dabbled in like commercial real estate mm-hmm. in Dallas for a little mm-hmm. bit. And then like, I guess you eventually figure out maybe coaching wrestling is something I love to do. How does that work? Yeah, and I think that same type of uh, that same type of value system that I've been discussing, I end up. I was about to be thirty years old. I figure like most men, I should probably get a job. <laughs> so I, end up, I use my you know my degree from Wharton. I started working in commercial real estate. Again, commercial real estate, you can be successful in that career. But for me, I just felt it was really tempting to end up wanting to draw my value from doing these deals. You know, buying and selling buildings, closing deals, represent tenants on their real estate deals. And again, like high fives are made. Hey, good job closing the deal. And again, it can be a great career for somebody. But for me, I felt I felt like it was very um, tempting for me to start drawing my value too much from kind of the money and the closing the deals. And this is what's really important in life. And I started stepping back going, okay, so I can do this. But at the end of the day, whose life did I really like? What, benefit today. what difference in what's the world? difference that i make in the yeah. world and i think ultimately like a clean conscience makes for a soft pillow and at the end of the day i just i didn't feel like my heart was in the right place and i thought you know what Wh- whose life did i impact what value did i add to the world today how do i enrich people's lives today and i really again it's no disrespect to commercial mm-hmm. real estate or people in it mm-hmm. but it just wasn't for me mm-hmm. And so I started missing wrestling. I started missing Olympism. I started missing the ability to mentor and enrich people's lives. And that's when I decided to get back involved in wrestling. 2008, the Olympics in Beijing only had one medal. Henry Cejudo won the gold. But for Team USA, that was failure in many ways. So they let the coaching staff go. <clears throat> they hired Zeke Jones as the national coach. He hired me as assistant national coach. And then I spent you know eight years at USA Wrestling. And, and I helped coach the... London Olympic team in 2012 and the Rio Olympic team in 2016. Okay. I'm going to get to that here uh, shortly. I just want to hit on this one topic because, you know, it's not often I sit across from a wrestler of your caliber, of your experience. Um, You know, later spent eight years as a national development coach for USA Wrestling and head coach at the Olympic Training Center. Was recently one of the coaches for Team USA in the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. I say all that to bring us to this topic. How much of a role, if at all, did you have when, um, I guess, the Olympic Committee members were considering, hey, we're taking wrestling out of the Olympics? Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on that, and how did you, how much were you involved in that? Well, so politically, I felt like I was a coach, and so there were, there were people that needed uh, to be more involved in the political fight, which they were. They traveled over to Switzerland. They, they met with the individuals with the International Olympic Committee. There were those individuals that, let's say, did that. I thought my job as the coach of Team USA was just to make sure that we as the coaches and the wrestlers were competing and acting with the utmost integrity and that we were being seen as a sport that they would want to add back to the Olympics based on who we are, how we acted, what we were saying in interviews. Mm-hmm. When we were winning matches, how did we were we arrogant and cocky or were we, were we champions with class? What were our wrestlers saying? What were our coaches saying? So I tried to make sure that we were dotting our eyes and crossing our T's in regards to our integrity. And I felt like our team did a good job of that that period of time. And I think when the IOC looked at us, especially as, as Team USA, I think they would have been proud of, of how we were you know, right. handling ourselves. And thankfully, our international federation, um, the, the leaders were pushed out. We got new leaders in place. And the IOC said, hey, you are one of the clearly oldest 
sports in the world and you know we'd like to have you back in the olympics so i'm ultra thankful that wrestling is back so uh inducted into uh the national wrestling hall of fame june 2016 um i guess it was a couple months before then uh brandon was named the executive director and head coach of the pennsylvania regional training center which brings us to today why is that important well uh, my lmp colleague and hall of fame wrestling writer dave Byrne did a nice job summarizing this in a recent article highlighting brandon's visit to lancaster um Long story short, I guess the U.S. national wrestling team has once again become a power. Part of the reason of that, there's regional training centers um, that's kind of expanded across the country in recent years. Um, these are usually located in different states in Iowa, Ohio, uh, Nittany Lion, Mac Club, up in State College. Um, 2014 was the year the Pennsylvania Regional Training Center was established located on the campuses of Drexel and University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So, duh, that's kind of your connection there. So you're kind of right. coming back home. Okay, I say all this to ask, um, for those folks who are unfamiliar with the Pennsylvania Regional Training Center, first off, what do you guys do? What are you special in? So, <clears throat> so the Pennsylvania Regional Training Center, I have four athletes that are 26 to 30-year-olds. So they're men that are training for the Olympics. So my job is to help maximize their development performance. What I need as a coach, though, I need a wrestling room where they can train, and I need partners. Where do I know a place to do that? Well, I went to Penn. I wrestled with Penn. I thought it would be great to be able to do that inside of Penn's wrestling room. So I'm, t- I'm training my four guys, BJ Fattrell, who's on our national team, um, Chase Pammy, um, Dan Valmont, Richard Perry, who's going to be with me mm-hmm. here today helping these kids. Those four guys, I train them in Penn's wrestling room. But also, Drexel happens to be one block away. So that's another unique situation. You have a Division One program, a block away with coaches and wrestlers. So, so what we do at the Pennsylvania RTC, I'm responsible for maximizing those four guys' development. Those four guys, as men, end up maximizing the college wrestlers' development because you put the 26-year-old with the 18-year-old freshman, 19-year-old sophomore, sophomore, the college wrestlers get better. And then with regional training centers, we also have opportunity to influence wrestlers within 250 miles of our location. Mm. So I don't work with California kids or Texas kids, but Lancaster kids, right? Kids from outside of Philadelphia, New Jersey. Those kids have the opportunity to come work with us at the Pennsylvania RTC and, again, spend time with college wrestlers and spend time with Olympic-level wrestlers. So you think about development. You take a high school freshman, high school sophomore, spending time in Penn and Drexel's wrestling room, wrestling with college guys, but also have an opportunity to wrestle with a 30-year-old. It's going to maximize the high school wrestler's development. And then, again, same thought process. It's going to maximize the college wrestler development. And then my job with my guys is clearly to help them make world Olympic teams. So the, the influence, the impact is, uh, is, is very – it's grandiose in the area in regards to wrestling. And you kind of hit on a little bit the, the point being it kind of speeds up the development of all these guys if they're working with older guys, which might – I guess what's the, what's the impact then – what you guys are doing on USA Wrestling as a whole, how will that help it, I guess, is what I'm getting to. So what USA Wrestling, here, the challenge is at the Olympic Training Center, again, where I've worked for eight years, we only have a certain amount of beds, let's just say 10 beds, where you can actually put somebody to live there and train there. Well, we have more than 10 wrestlers in our country. Mm-hmm. We have more than 10 really good wrestlers. So you can't have all the wrestlers, our best wrestlers in the country, live and train at the Olympic Training Center. There's just not enough bed space. There's not enough mills. So you'd have to have whatever... $10 million to make sure you can pay them stipends, rent, and health insurance. They live off complex. It's a big undertaking. <clears throat> so you end up going, well, so what are these guys going to train? Again, they need wrestling room. They need partners. Who has wrestling rooms and partners? Colleges. What are, where are great programs that we could do this? Penn State, Ohio State, Iowa, 
Oklahoma State, University of Pennsylvania. So that's what that's what the term we use called the regional training centers. So USA Wrestling, they're sitting back and they're thankful now because these separate five hundred one c three nonprofits, regional training centers on these college campuses. That's where all our guys are training and they're being funded. They're being paid stipends and health insurance and taken care of at those regional training centers. So USA Wrestling, in many ways, our regional training centers are helping prepare and develop our Olympic-level wrestlers. Our team that just won the world championship in Paris, they're the best wrestling team on the planet. Every single one of those guys trains at a regional training center. None of those guys live in Colorado Springs and train at the Olympic Training Center. They all train at... Nebraska, they all train Missouri, they all train Ohio State, different RTCs. So in regards to what regional training centers are doing specific to USA Wrestling is, is we're, we're really their developmental program. We're helping develop the high school wrestlers in the areas. We're helping develop the college wrestlers who a lot of them want to be Olympic champions. And we're clearly helping develop the guys who are going to wrestle in the world in the Olympic Games. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you a chance one second here to promote all that. How can folks find out more information? I'll ask you that in a second. I will say, if you guys like today's Inspirational Athletes podcast and you enjoy listening to the previous 50 episodes, so feel free to go back and check those out in the archives. Continue listening in the future. We have awesome guests lined up. Um, next week, Garden, or later on this week, Garden Spot alum Julie O'Brien, she just recently returned to the States after playing professional volleyball in Italy. Uh, we'll then have Steve Borgia, the Garden Spot wrestler, who's now an assistant coach at Franklin and Marshall. Um, Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we'll be chatting with Will Keeper about his nonprofit program called Benchmark. Helps at-risk youth uh, through weightlifting and, and classroom programs. And then the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, we're going to welcome on Mike's Mennonite grad Bobby Longenecker. Uh, he's now a local physical therapist. He'll share his story of recovery. Um, a lot of health setbacks that he's had the last couple of years. He's now returned to the marathon scene. It's a really awesome story. So stay tuned for that and more coming up here. Um, and yeah, Brandon, if, if there's any way that folks want to support you and, and find out more information about your program with the Pennsylvania RTC, how can they either follow you on Twitter or yeah. find the program that you're coaching? So all my social media is at Coach Slay, Coach S-L-A-Y. So if people want to follow me on, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, they can do that. For the Pennsylvania RTC, we're at Pennsylvania RTC on social media. And our website is PennsylvaniaRTC.org. And so we have about 150 free technique videos for kids. They can learn. They don't have to pay for them. Just go in there and check it out. Fill with Olympic champions teaching technique. So so feel free to go get that. And then we're a nonprofit. So if, uh, if people feel like that we're a value to the sport of wrestling and they'd like to support our cause, they can go on our website and they can donate to the Pennsylvania RTC as well. Great. And before we wrap up here, I just want to give a shout out to my colleagues Tyler Huber and Irene Snyder. They're the engineers slash producers of the podcast. Thanks to another colleague, Claudia Espenshade. She handles all the posting duties to get this thing online. So thanks to them. Thanks to you guys for listening. And Brandon, thanks for sharing your story, man. You did a great job. Thanks for your time, Johnson. Awesome.